Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. As a pastor, I have the privilege of joining with couples who are preparing to get married. In fact, just a few days ago, I sat down with a couple, and we talked about their upcoming wedding uh, later this year. And as many of us know, there is lots that's involved in planning a wedding. Amen? There is lots that's involved in planning a wedding. Uh, invitations, flower arrangements, food, music, etc. But one thing virtually every couple hopes to avoid on their big day is rain. But how do you guarantee no rain on your wedding day? After all, there is no way to control the weather, is there? Actually, there is. A London-based luxury travel company is offering to guarantee, I'm going to say that word one more time, guarantee that no rain, uh, that rain will not ruin your wedding day. Now, of course, many of us wonder, hey, is that even possible? And apparently it is according to Oliver's Travels website. Here's what they write. In order to ensure the most perfect of perfect days, we can now offer our customers a cloud-bursting service. You ever heard of this before? Cloud-bursting service that can 100%, not 75%, not 90%, not even 99.9%, but 100% guarantee fair weather and clear skies for your wedding day. Currently available to customers organizing a destination wedding in France. So unfortunately, the service is not available in the Orlando area just yet. Maybe in the future. Although France would be a pretty nice place to get married, wouldn't it? Very romantic. The service employs the talents of pilots and meteorologists and takes over three weeks to plan. It uses silver iodide to seed the clouds, essentially giving the water vapor something to condense around to produce rain. Now, it's worth pointing out, and this probably won't surprise you, that costs are not cheap. This cloud-bursting service starts at around 150,000 U.S. dollars, which is probably outside the budget of most couples. But then again, Oliver's Travels website asks, can you really put a price on perfection and happiness? Some of you are saying, absolutely you can. But the results, as they say, are guaranteed. Well, folks, as much as we try to avoid storms, and let's be real, we all try to avoid storms, but as much as we try to avoid storms, storms are inevitable, aren't they? And I'm not just talking about physical storms, although physical storms are definitely inevitable. I'm talking about the storms of life that we all experience from time to time, those that involve suffering, difficulty, hardship. And when Jesus left the upper room with the disciples after sharing the Passover Seder, that was the beginning of the greatest suffering that Jesus would come to endure. Um, last Sunday morning here at Asbury, we kicked off this new sermon series for Lent. And if you're not familiar with Lent, I'm not talking about the stuff in your belly button or your dryer. I'm talking about the season of the church, L-E-N-T, uh, the 40-day season that leads us into Easter. Well, we talked about, or we started this new sermon series for Lent called 24 Hours That Changed the World. 
Now, based on a book of the same name by Pastor Adam Hamilton. And in these sermons, what we are doing as a church family is we are zeroing in and we are looking carefully at the last 24 hours of Jesus' earthly life, trying to understand and wrap our brains around the events that happened because these events changed the course of history forever and these events continue to inspire us, mold us, and shape us to this very day. And so last week, as we began this new sermon series, we talked about what happened on Thursday of Holy Week. And what is Holy Week? Holy Week is the last week of Jesus' life on earth, the events that led up to Easter Sunday, while on Thursday of Holy Week, the day before Good Friday, Jesus gathered with his 12 disciples in the upper room, and they shared one last meal, uh, a meal that we, have, that we now call the Last Supper. And the meal that Jesus and the disciples were sharing in was actually the Passover Seder. Now, as we mentioned last time, the Passover, also called what? The Festival of Unleavened Bread, is incredibly significant for Jewish people. Um, the Passover commemorates one of the central acts of the Old Testament. God liberating the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. God saw the suffering of his people as they were enslaved, as they were suffering under the yoke of Pharaoh, and God rescued them from Pharaoh, and he made covenant with them to be their sovereign God. And so by the time Jesus came on the scene 2,000 years ago, Jews had been observing Passover for at least 1,200 years, if not longer. And then during the Passover Seder, Jesus changed everything when he instituted what we call Holy Communion, or the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, what did Jesus do? Well, he took a loaf of bread. Jewish culture is very visual. So he took a loaf of bread, he broke it, he took a cup of wine, he poured it, and in breaking the bread and pouring the wine, Jesus signaled that in a few hours, his body would be broken, and his blood would be spilled on the cross. So that all human beings, not just the Israelites, not just one group of people, but all human beings might be delivered from another kind of slavery. God delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, but through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, all of us as human beings might be delivered from a different kind of slavery. Slavery to sin and death. These forces that have been oppressing humanity since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Now, the disciples didn't necessarily understand all this, but nevertheless, they ate. They participated in this meal. And they probably had a good sense that something was up, that something was about to happen. Well, then, after the Passover meal was over, Mark tells us in his gospel, and as a reminder, there are four gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, which document the story of Jesus, and in the sermon series, we are drawing primarily from the gospel of Mark, because scholars believe that it is the earliest gospel, the first gospel written. Well, Mark tells us when the Passover was over, that Jesus and the disciples concluded everything by singing a hymn. Listen to these words from Mark 14, verse 26. Then they, that would be Jesus and the disciples, sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, we actually know the words of the hymn that Jesus and the disciples sang that night because this hymn is still a part of the Passover Seder all these years later. It's called... The Hallel. Can you all say this with me? 
Hallel. Hallel comes from the Hebrew word for praise. It's actually where we get the word hallelujah. Now, technically, you're not supposed to say hallelujah during Lent because Lent is supposed to be a more somber season, and hallelujah is a very joyous word, exuberant word. I'm sorry, I broke the rules this morning, but I did it to make a point. Uh, but the Hallel is actually composed of select verses from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And I can't help but wonder if Jesus thought about the words of the Hallel and drew comfort from them as he considered the suffering that he was going to endure. Take a listen to what it says here in Psalm 118. And again, Jesus and the disciples, they would have been singing these words. In my distress, I prayed to the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is for me, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? I will not die, instead I will live, to tell what the Lord has done. My enemies did their best to kill me, but the Lord rescued me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He is giving me victory. These words probably echoed in Jesus' mind as he and the disciples left the upper room after the Passover, probably around 11 o'clock that Thursday night, and then made the journey to the Garden of Gethsemane. And at this point, it would have been 11 of the disciples. Uh, Judas would not have been there. And then once Jesus and the 11 disciples got to the garden, this is what Mark says happened next. This is from Mark 14, uh, verses 32 through 42. And this is the text that we're going to focus on this morning. They, uh, that would be Jesus and the disciples, went to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. And then he returned and found the disciples asleep. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them again and prayed the same prayer as before. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open, and they didn't know what to say. When he returned to them the third time, he said, go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But no, the time has come. The Son of Man, and Son of Man, by the way, uh, that's a title that Jesus would use to refer to himself. It's a divine title taken from the Old Testament, the book of Daniel. He says, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer, talking here about Judas, is here. This is the word of God for the people of God, to which we all say, thanks be to God. I've entitled my sermon this weekend, The Suffering Servant. Now, we typically think of Jesus' suffering as taking place on Good Friday when he was crucified. And there's no question, there's no doubt that Jesus suffered tremendously on Good Friday when he died. And yet the truth is, the Garden of Gethsemane was also a place of great suffering for Jesus. 
Remember, Jesus had announced to the disciples earlier that evening in the upper room as they were sharing the Passover that one of the disciples was going to betray him. And that's when Judas got up from the table and he went out into the night to go find the religious authorities. And then once the meal was over and they sang that hymn and they began that journey to the Garden of Gethsemane, um, Jesus dropped another bombshell to the disciples. He basically said, listen, all of you are going to desert me. You're all going to abandon me. You're all going to run away. And that's when Peter, the very disciple whom Jesus had called Rock, well, Peter spoke up and he tried to correct Jesus. Imagine being so bold so as to correct the Son of God. He said, Lord, you really have no idea what you're talking about. I'm paraphrasing here. But he said, Lord, you have no idea what you're talking about. Even if all these other guys abandon you, desert you, leave you, forsake you, I never will. I will follow you wherever you go. And then Jesus reveals the tough truth to Peter. Truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows twice, in other words, before morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And so surely the knowledge that he was going to be betrayed by Judas, denied three times by Peter, and then abandoned by the other disciples was enough to produce great sorrow for Jesus. But Jesus' sorrow only got worse when he got to the garden. The Garden of Gethsemane. And I imagine even if you're not a church-going person, maybe this is your first time in church in a long time, and you're not super familiar with Scripture, but chances are you've heard of the Garden of Gethsemane before. The Garden of Gethsemane is a grove of olive trees that sit at the base, or that sits at the base of the Mount of Olives in the Kidron Valley. Uh, we have a picture of the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, this is what it looks like today. If you ever get the chance to visit the Holy Land, you can actually go to this sacred space. Now, the reason it's called Gethsemane, Gethsemane is a Hebrew word that means oil press, because 2,000 years ago, there was an oil press located somewhere in this garden. Uh, that oil press is not here anymore. It has not stood the test of time. But in Jesus' day, it did exist, and that's why this place is called Gethsemane. And some people believe that these trees that you just saw up here in the monitor actually date back to the time of Jesus. In fact, it's possible that the disciples fell asleep under these trees. Now, one question we have to ask is this. How did Judas, the betrayer, know to bring the religious authorities here? Because again, Judas left the upper room during the Passover meal. He wasn't with Jesus and the disciples as they made the journey to the Garden of Gethsemane. So how did Judas know to bring the religious authorities here? Well, Mark doesn't tell us the answer in his gospel, but two of the other gospel writers, Luke and John, they clue us in. Check out these words from Luke 22, verse 39. Then accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room, or again the upper room, and went as usual to the Mount of Olives. So that's how Luke puts it. This is how John puts it in his gospel. After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Judas, the betrayer, knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. The Mount of Olives, and again Gethsemane, sits at the base of the Mount of Olives. This was basically the go-to place of Jesus and the disciples. This was the hangout spot in Jerusalem for Jesus and the disciples. Now granted, this is an imperfect analogy, so please take it for what it is. 
But I like to watch sitcoms every once in a while. Uh, Amanda and I like to do that as a way of winding down at the end of the day. And it reminds me how in TV sitcoms, the cast of characters always have this go-to spot where they hang out. You know what I'm talking about? For example, in Cheers, it's what? The Cheers bar? Some of you are thinking, did Chris really just draw an analogy between the Cheers bar and the garden at Gethsemane? Yes, I guess I did. I'm sorry. Please don't send me any emails. This is the kind of sophisticated theology you're going to get this morning from your pastor. But in Cheers, it's the Cheers bar. Or maybe you don't like Cheers. Well, maybe you like Seinfeld. In Seinfeld, it's the coffee shop or a more recent sitcom in The Big Bang Theory. It's Leonard and Sheldon's living room, and nobody sits in Sheldon's spot. You won't get that joke unless you watch the show. But think of the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, in that kind of way. But then the other question we ask ourselves is this. Why Gethsemane? Why of all the places in Jerusalem that Jesus could have gone to this night, did Jesus choose to go here? Why was this the last place that he went to right before he was arrested? Was it the beauty of the grove? I mean, you saw that picture a moment ago. This was a really beautiful location. So was it the beauty of the grove? Was it because that from this spot he had a good vantage point of the mount of the temple? Was it because 1,000 years earlier, when David was king of Israel, David actually went to the Mount of Olives to cry and to pray after David was betrayed by his own son, Absalom, and one of his servants? Was it a way of connecting with the words of the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament when Zechariah said that one day the Messiah, the anointed one, would stand on the Mount of Olives? Was it the serenity, the calmness of the location? Was it a combination of some or all these things? We don't necessarily know. But what we do know is this. Jesus regularly came to this place for prayer. This is where Jesus chose to go in his hour of greatest anguish. And so I'm curious. This is something for you to think about. Do you have a spot like that? Do you have a place where you like to go when something's weighing on your soul, when you're really upset? Or maybe even a place where you just feel this special connection to God, an overwhelming sense of God's presence. Maybe you're a beach person and it's the beach. Or maybe it's a park in your community. Maybe it's a garden in your backyard. Maybe it's our sanctuary or our lakeside chapel here at Asbury. I know that for myself, one of those places, although I haven't been able to go there in recent years, is the sanctuary at Christ Church United Methodist in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The congregation where I grew up, where I came to know God's love for me in Jesus Christ and experienced salvation. My parents, when I was born, weren't initially church-going people, but then when I was about seven years old, that changed. And we started to go to church on a regular basis. And so I remember going to the sanctuary as a child and being beside my mom at the 11 o'clock service, which was by far the most traditional service at the church. We would recite the Apostles' Creed every Sunday, say the Lord's Prayer, sing the hymns. And I remember as a child, again, just seven, eight, nine years old, sitting beside my mom, listening to the pastor preach and wondering if maybe one day I could do that be a pastor. 
I answered my call to pastoral ministry when I was 16 years old, and I started the candidacy process um, in the Florida Conference of the United Methodist Church. And I remember at some point during the process when I was in college, I was serving on team at the Warren Willis Camp in Fruitland Park, which is our conference camp. I was a counselor there. And I had to leave one weekend to go back down to Fort Lauderdale. I think this was during July or something like that because the church had called a special conference to approve my candidacy. And so I went there when the service was over, the last service, and I stood up at the front of the sanctuary, and with a lot of fear, I was so nervous, trepidation, I stood up there, I tripped over my words, I fumbled over my words, but I told the congregation that yes, I felt a call from God to pastoral ministry, and I felt nothing but the love and the support and the energy and the excitement from the people there in that room that day. It is impossible for me today to step into that sanctuary at Christ Church United Methodist in Fort Lauderdale without feeling this overwhelming sense of God. I go in there, and it's like God is hugging me, embracing me. And I think Jesus felt that way about the Garden of Gethsemane. He just felt his Father's presence. And yet Gethsemane, as we've already noted, was a place of great suffering for Jesus. In Mark 14, that passage that we looked at this morning, once Jesus and the 11 disciples get to the garden, he tells the disciples to keep watching, to pray. And then what Jesus does next is he pulls three of those 11 disciples aside. Who were they? Peter, James, and John. The very same disciples who had seen Jesus transfigured. Well, he pulls these three disciples aside and he reveals how he's truly feeling inside. Again, this is from Mark 14. Verse 34, he told them, Peter, James, and John, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Folks, that's a heavy statement, isn't it? My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death? And then Mark says, Jesus goes on a bit further. He just collapses on the ground. And he begs God, he pleads with God to let this awful hour awaiting him pass him by. Again, this is from verse 36. Abba, and by the way, Abba is an Aramaic term. It means father or even daddy. Abba, father, he cried out. Everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Perhaps the idea of Jesus struggling so much in the garden, asking for this cup of suffering, asking for the cross, basically, to be taken away, is unsettling for us. After all, we think, well, come on. Jesus is God, right? I mean, sure, it was difficult and it was hard, but if anybody could do it, God could. But lest we forget, in addition to being 100% God, and there's no question about it. Jesus was 100% God. He was God in the flesh. He was God incarnate, God from all eternity. But in addition to being 100% God, Jesus was also what? 100% human, which means that he was fully subject to the human experience as you and I are. It's not as if when they arrested Jesus and began to spit on him and punch him that he didn't feel the spit or the blows. Or it's not as if when they crucified Jesus that he didn't feel the nails because he did. Yes, he was fully God, but he was fully human, fully subject to the human experience. And sometimes as Christians, we overlook the human aspect of Jesus. 
But there's another possible reason. Jesus may have struggled so much in the garden. Now Mark, in his gospel, and Mark is a man of few words. Uh, His gospel is by far the shortest. It's 16 chapters long. But he doesn't explicitly say this, but he almost implies it. And if you've ever seen Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ that came out almost 20 years ago, Mel Gibson actually brings out this idea. Mark says that Jesus pulls Peter, James, and John aside. He tells them to pray with him. And then what he does is he goes and he prays, Father, please take this cup of suffering away. Not my will be done, your will be done. Then he goes back, he finds the disciples asleep. He tells them to stay awake. He goes back a second time, he prays this prayer. Father, please take this cup of suffering away. Not my will, your will. He comes back, what are the disciples doing? Once more they're sleeping, he tells them to keep awake. Then he goes back a third time, prays this prayer. Comes back, he finds the disciples asleep. Again, listen to these words From Mark 14, verse 41, when he returned to them the third time. In other words, Mark is clear that this incident of Jesus praying and the disciples falling asleep took place how many times? Three times. Now, could it be, and again, Mark doesn't explicitly say this, but could it be that this threefold incident is meant to mirror the three temptations that Jesus endured just before the start of his public ministry after he was baptized, when he went to the wilderness and Satan tempted him. Now, Mark doesn't specify in his gospel that there were three temptations. He just says in a more general way that Jesus was tempted. But Matthew and Luke, they're clear. Jesus was tempted three times. So could it be that here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is once more wrestling with the tempter? Could it be that even as Jesus was falling on the ground, praying for God to take the cup of suffering away, that Satan was standing close by, whispering in his ear, you sure you want to do this? I mean, you're 33 years old. You've got so much life ahead of you. Are you really the son of God? Who's this father that you keep talking about? And by the way, Have you seen your disciples? What a sorry bunch. One of them is going to betray you in just a few minutes. The other one's going to deny you three times. The others are going to desert you, abandon you, and you want to leave the work that you started in their hands? Is this a joke? You've got to be kidding. If that's the case, if Satan, the devil, stood by and tempted Jesus as he was praying, then certainly the emotional, the mental, the spiritual turmoil of such temptation would have been great. And yet even so, and this is the point I want to end on, Jesus obeyed his Father's will. Jesus obeyed his Father's will. Knowing what had already happened with Judas, knowing what was going to happen with Peter and the other disciples, knowing that he would soon be crucified, executed, Jesus chose obedience to God over safety. He chose the cross over his own comfort. He chose to die even while knowing that he could live. And folks, there will come times and moments and seasons for all of us as followers of Jesus Christ when we will find ourselves in a similar place. Maybe not exactly like Jesus, but but somewhat similar. Chances are we, we know what it's like to sense God wanting us to do something, 
that, quite frankly, we don't want to do. Maybe we feel called to take on a new assignment. Maybe we feel called to start a ministry that scares us, terrifies us. We feel unqualified. Maybe we feel called to, to give sacrificially to an organization, to leave behind an unhealthy relationship. The choice is before us as it was before Jesus 2,000 years ago. Are we going to obey God? Follow God's leading? Do what God wants? Or are we going to do our own thing instead? Gary Haugen is the founder of a Christian organization called International Justice Mission. International Justice Mission. It's an organization that frees people trapped in the bonds of sex trafficking. Well, in an article that he wrote for Sojourners Magazine, Haugen describes God's call in his life to start this organization, International Justice Mission. He says, I vividly remember when I finally had to make a decision to abandon my career at the U.S. Department of Justice to become the first employee of a not-for-profit organization that didn't yet actually exist called International Justice Mission. I had worked for three years with friends on the idea of IJM and was very excited in theory about this dream of following Jesus and the work of justice in the world. But then I had to actually act. I had to walk into the Department of Justice and turn in my badge. This was what he had worked for. This was his career. I tried to be very brave and very safe. That is to say, I walked in and asked my bosses for a year-long leave of absence. My bosses politely, at least they were polite about it, but they politely declined. I was suddenly feeling very nervous. What was I really afraid of? As I thought about it, I feared humiliation. If my little justice ministry idea didn't work out, I would be terribly embarrassed. Having told everybody about my great idea, they would know that it was a bad idea or that I was a bad leader. Either way, it would be humiliating. So there it was, my boundary of fear. I sensed God inviting me to an extraordinary adventure of service, but deep inside, I was afraid of looking like a fool and a loser. This was actually very helpful to see because it helped me get past it. When I'm older... Do I really want to look back and say, yeah, I sense that God was calling me to lead a movement to bring rescue to people who desperately need an advocate in the world, but I was afraid of getting embarrassed, and so I never even tried. Imagine if Gary Haugen had said no to God, embraced his own will instead of God's. Not that this would have ever happened, but just kind of imagine it for a moment. Even more terrifying, what if Jesus had done that? Folks, there are times when we are faced with a choice. Are we going to obey God even when it costs us tremendously, even when it's scary and frightening? Or are we going to do our own thing instead? Remember, we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus who was obedient to the Father, even to the point of crucifixion, who never for a single moment Stopped embracing God's will. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus' obedience and for what it teaches us as his followers. God, we are called to be obedient to you no matter what. We are called to give of ourselves not some of who we are, not a lot of who we are, but all of who we are. So help us, God, toward that end. Help us to be laborers in your kingdom.
by the power of your spirit so that this world might be different, so that your kingdom might be realized in our midst and more and more people might come to experience salvation in Christ, which is what it's all about. And this world might be as you intend for it to be. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.